Friends, welcome to the Slaking Thirst podcast, where you'll find the homilies, talks, and reflections of Father Ryan Mann and Father Patrick Schultz of the Diocese of Cleveland. Slaking Thirst is all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, which is also a divine heart, seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts will meet and both thirsts will be slaked. Thanks for joining us on the journey into Christ's desire for us. Um, all right, so this is Father Pat Schultz. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. The name, of, the name alone is applaud. Uh, he is a parochial vicar at Sacred Heart Parish in Wadsworth, which is, also happens to be Ethan's parish, but you guys know that. Uh, and yeah, you're going to talk to us about theology of the body. Wait, that's uh, my topic? I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> or um, he also is going to talk about um, camels in Australia, his second favorite topic in the world. Crikey. <laughs> Fun fact, camels are not native to Australia. <laughs> Just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> um, they'll talk for probably about an hour, and then maybe ten minutes of questions, and then we'll do a breakout. So okay. Cool. So an hour from now. Yeah. So okay. Two thirty. Yeah. Dentist so favorite time. All right. Cool. Well, guys, I'm stoked to be with you. Um, I I've taught. So what Father Kevin's doing with he's your theology teacher this year, right? This week. Um, I've done that. I don't think I've given this. Have you guys done a theology of the body breakout separate, like in the past? Okay, I don't know if I. It was, it was usually just Father Damien. Okay, so yeah, so he must have done that. All right. No, I'm stoked to do this. I'm stoked to be with you, and um, yeah, I think this is this is awesome. I think you'll hear um, a, some good synthesizing themes from what you're already covering in philosophy and what Father Kevin's already given you in theology. So, uh, is Doctor Rath doing philosophy with you? Is that who's okay? All right. Dr. Rath. All right, so what I want to do, this is how I always think about theology of the body, that um, it's, theology of the body is not a, a separate I- set of ideas that just makes sense within the tradition. Theology of the body is uh, the least inadequate lens that the Lord has given us to perceive rightly the entire mystery of faith. So theology of the body is, a, is like a set of corrective lenses. Anybody else here besides me have glasses? Okay, wow. You're, okay, all right, good, okay. So um, you need corrective lenses when you've got bad vision, right? So like the theology of the body is, is those corrective lenses that, that most of us growing up, we weren't given, and the church seems to be super ill-equipped to, I don't know, it's getting better at, at communicating this vision of the faith or this way of seeing the faith. So it's nothing new. It's, it's, it's as old as the Gospels. It's old as the Scriptures, um, John Paul II just gave it a good new rearticulation when he was uh, when he was pope. So that's what I want to do. Um, I want us to see that the beauty of uh, like the entire story, what the, what holds all the pieces together, is this uh, this theology of the body thing. So we're going to be just scratching the very tip of the iceberg, and um, it's just I know there's uh, there's just a lot a lot more. Who's who's somewhat familiar with this? Like when I say theology of the body, you're like, yeah, I'm kind of familiar with that. Anybody? Okay, cool. All right, so, um, all right, sweet. Well, let's pray first and then uh, dive in. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, we sign ourselves, we sign our bodies with the sign of your victory, the sign of the cross, the cross which is the stumbling block to, um, to the nations. 
the cross, which is the madness of your love revealed for us, that you, by like no necessity, you took on our flesh, you took on our plight, and you plunged yourself deep into the icy waters of our brokenness and alienation to rescue us, that you came in order to save us through an embrace. Lord, to this afternoon, I ask you to pour your Holy Spirit upon these dear young friends, that you would open their hearts to hear and receive the truth that you want to convey, the truth of your incarnation, the truth of your unbelievable love. And we entrust ourselves we place ourselves in Mary's immaculate womb where all good things come to fruition as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. St. John Paul II. Pray for us. Sweet. Uh, so many of you have probably seen on YouTube... Um, some of those videos of like colorblind people getting those glasses for the first, who's seen those videos, you know what I'm talking about? Like they're colorblind, they put on these new glasses to help them see. I wanna start with this video. Um, anybody seen this one in particular? This kid's my hero. I love this dude. Let's watch. Look at your case and tell me what color that is. Uh, wait, are, are these my color? Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is red. Look, look at the sign up there. What's that? And oh my orange kid you're still blind <laughs> i love this kid i love him so much and i just like he, he probably went to jail for looking at people's crotches you know at some point but but that's amazing right that's amazing all right so the uh oh my gosh i love him so much all right the um most of those videos i don't know about you i watch these videos and i'm like oh, you see a car? oh my gosh right 
All right, so Jesus in the Gospels, he has this to say about humanity. He says, they look, but they do not see. Most Christians are colorblind. We are not seeing reality. We're not seeing creation. We're not seeing, most especially, our bodies the way that God intended us to see them. We're not seeing salvation, scriptures, the sacraments. We're not seeing the way that we're meant to see. They look, but they do not see, which is why Jesus' very first like, invitation to humanity is in John's Gospel where he says, Come and become one who sees. Usually we hear that rendered in English as come and see. When you got the disciples of John the Baptist who are like, Master, where are you staying? He says, come and see. But literally, this is Pope Benedict. He says, the actual translation is come and become one who sees. Come and become one who sees. This is what I kind of want to do with you guys just for the very short hour that we have, hour and a half or whatever. I want to invite you to come and become one who sees, to put on these new lenses. So just to shift the analogy ever so slightly, I think most people's experience of the faith, at least mine growing up, is like going to like a 3D movie without having the 3D glasses, right? Um, Who's seen like a 3D movie in the theater, right? Okay, so like you need the 3D glasses. Otherwise, it looks super weird, right? Uh, They don't do like the blue and red thing anymore. But like, uh, you know, the Muppets at, at Disney World or whatever, like it's the blue and red. But you watch this, this movie, you're like, okay, I see, like, that part makes sense, but that, like, I don't get that part that's blurry. Like, most Catholics, I think, experience of the faith is like this. Like, I see it, but I'm like, oh, I don't really get all of it. Like, I'm just missing something, right? Then you've got other people in the theater. Like, let's, you know, think of, like, saints or, like, Teresa of Avila who's floating on the ceiling or something. And, like, they look like these people, right? Who are just like, ah! <laughs> like, Sacraments are amazing, right? Um, or like, you know, priests in your totally legge, uh, you know, class today. Um, just like the people who are wearing the lenses have their minds blown, right? Like these are the people who have come and see, right? So I think most Catholics do not see the faith the way that Jesus intends us to see it. So the question is like, like what are, like what's, what did John Paul II see? What did Teresa of Avila see? What did Catherine of Siena? And and France of Assisi, like, what are they seeing that most of us are not seeing? Like, why is it that when some saints, like, see a leaf fall from a tree, they just, like, begin weeping and fall into ecstasy? <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> you know, like, clearly they're seeing something that I'm just like, like, that guy needs a doctor, right? <laughs> like, maybe I'm just missing it, you know? So, all right, so the gospel, what is it that they're seeing? What they're seeing is the gospel is telling this grand love story. Like, it's the story behind all of our stories, the love story behind all of our poems and sonnets and ballads and everything. Like, what they're seeing and so in touch with is the kernel, the love story that's at the heart of everything. What makes sense of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is this insane love story. It's this insane love. And once you see it, once you see how it's being communicated and your place in the story and how God wants to communicate that to you, woo, you're like one of these guys. You're like, I love it so much. All right, you're spilling your popcorn. My favorite is this guy right here. Oh, man, I love him so much. All right, here's where I want to start with uh, this quote from the Catechism, paragraph 1617. If I can encourage you to meditate on this paragraph, I... um, I would, so I am. I'm encouraging you. All right, it says this. The entire Christian life, how much of the Christian life? The entire Christian life, thanks for playing, bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church. We're going to unpack that word spousal a little bit more, but spousal meaning this relationship of um, intense love, 
of total love, this relationship of um, intense intimacy. Like, notice it's not saying the entire Christian life is about, you know, punishing sinners, rewarding good people who try really hard to be good, and, like, the entire Christian life is about leaving earth to go to heaven. That's another talk for another day, but that is not the gospel. That's, that's something called Gnosticism, not Christianity. Um, the entire Christian life is marked by the spousal love of Christ in the church. Two of our most recent popes, Benedict XVI and John Paul II, have reiterated this over and over and over again in their magisterium. Benedict, he said this. Think of Benedict, right? Today's his 70th anniversary of his priestly ordination, by the way. Yeah, 70 years ago. All right, so... He said this, so the German shepherd, right, very, very serious, Pope Benedict, said that the Song of Songs, are we familiar with the Song of Songs? It's that steamy book in the center of the Bible. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't even mention God. It's just all erotic love poetry. And there's some, there's some really just choice pickup lines in there. Um, like, your, your belly's like a bushel of wheat, baby. Um, or your, what's the other one? Your navel. Your navel's like a bowl of wine. Or the other, my favorite one is the, uh, your teeth are like shorn ewes coming up, from the, coming up from the river. All of them twins. In other words, you got all your teeth, baby. Uh, yeah. That's some, so, yeah. For, for those of you who don't end up in the seminary, those are some good pickup lines, fellas. All right. So, Pope Benedict, he says this about that book. He says the Song of Songs is it expresses the essence of biblical faith. The essence of biblical faith. The German shepherd, Pope Benedict. <laughs> the essence of biblical faith. All right, what is the essence of biblical faith? It's that story of God's passionate pursuit of humanity. It's this absurd love story, the pursuit of God rushing into, like, the, like I prayed, the icy depths of our isolation, our God-forsakenness, to rescue us, to embrace us, to love us, to be united to us, like God wants union with you, right? That he wants to flood and fill our hearts with his divine life. John Paul II, he put it this way. So um, one of the scariest passages for priests to, to preach on is Ephesians 5, which is where you hear St. Paul say, husbands or uh, wives be subordinate to your husbands. And I'm like that's where it's like, oh gosh, this is gonna go, this is gonna go great. I had a lady one time after Mass, this is not a sacred heart, at my last parish who yelled at me after Mass for preaching about this, and she said, Father, you've got to get that out of the Bible. What? (laughs) That's above my pay grade. (laughs) I think you need a doctor. Okay. John Paul II, he said this. So speaking of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, St. Paul's magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery appears as the compendium or summa, in some sense, of the teaching about God and man, which was brought to fulfillment by Christ. In other words, like, so John Paul II is referring to Ephesians 5, where Paul says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Paul says, this is a great mystery, this whole idea of human intimacy, human love, the complementary between masculine and feminine. This whole reality of marriage and sexuality, he says, that's a great mystery. But then he says this, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. In other words, that whole reality, that earthly reality of human love is actually in reference to or is pointing to or revealing the true nature of Christ in the church, right? So John Paul II is saying, he says, the mystery spoken of in Ephesians 5 is great indeed. As God's salvific plan for humanity, that mystery is in some sense, again, 
the central theme of the whole of Revelation. It's central reality. I love this line. It's what God wishes above all to transmit to mankind in his word. Like you could spend the rest of your life meditating on Ephesians 5 and John Paul II says, that's fine. That's, that, that's the Cliff Notes version of the entire story. That chapter. Everything is distilled like a, like a fine balsamic, right? It's distilled in Ephesians 5 right there. All right, so what is it, you ask, that God wishes to transmit to, hum- to humanity in his word? God wants to marry us. God wants union with us. God wants a relationship with you that the least inadequate way, the least inadequate image he could use to describe it is it's like that between a husband and a wife. I want to be that close to you. I want to be that intimate with you. I want to be implicated in everything that is yours. I want union with you. I don't merely just want a relationship. I want a relationship with you that is like spouses. Like, and I'm not making this up. It's all over the scriptures. Like the Bible begins... Um, with Genesis, with a marriage of uh, a human couple in an earthly garden, right? Adam and Eve. That's a wedding scene. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation with the marriage of Christ the Lamb to the church. So the two bookends of the Bible are marriages, right? Smack dab in the middle of the Bible. Literally, the Song of Songs, if you were to take your Bible and crack it in half, um, you'll pretty much end up in the Song of Songs. The middle of the Bible is this erotic love poetry all throughout the Old Testament like, God is comparing himself to this bridegroom. Like, what was Jesus' first miracle? What did he do? Pop quiz. It was a wedding feast. He could have done anything. He could have turned fish into goats. He could have turned, like, he could have he made, like, I don't know, like a flying horse. I don't know. He could have done anything. But he makes a ton of booze at a wedding feast. Like, which is, by the way, like, when you get ordained, people think weird things about priests, especially at wedding receptions. They're like, yeah, I'm standing there holding my cocktail. They're like, wait, priests drink? They're like, excuse me, Jesus' first miracle, 180 gallons of the choicest wine. Like, I don't know what Bible you're reading or what, you know, Jesus you're talking to, but my Jesus, he keeps the party going. All right. So the entire Bible, guys, the entire Bible, it's telling this grand love story between God and humanity where humanity, us, we are the pursued. God is the pursuer, right? That's the story. That's the story. His deepest desire, like I said, is not mere friendship or relationship with us. You know, you might hear your Protestant friends say, like, do you, like to Catholics, like, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? They're like, yeah, but like, do you have a spousal relationship with him? Because that's what he wants. You've got personal relationships with, with lots of people. You have a spousal relationship like with one person, namely your spouse, if you're married, right? It speaks to the depth of intimacy, the depth of like total access and availability. I'm letting you in all the way. I'm holding nothing back, right? That's God. That's what he did on the cross, right? I'm letting you in all the way. I'm holding nothing back. I'm pouring it all out. And he's like desiring that reciprocity. He wants us to reciprocate that. All right, so for us to understand this story, to kind of get into this a little bit further, are you guys with me so far? And I'm just, you're going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant for like the next like 45 minutes. But you're good? All right. If you raise your hand, I might not even see you. So like you have to like go like, like just do something. Help me see you. Okay. All right. To start understanding this story, we have to start uh, where it all begins, which is within the Trinity itself. So the, the early church fathers, they had this awesome word to describe the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. And that's the word perichoresis. That's a Greek word, which means like to turn about, to... 
Um, yeah, and where we see that word showing up in ancient literature is in describing uh, dances. So they're describing the Trinity as this endless dance, this eternal exchange of life and love. Um, I want to show you a real quick clip of, I think, a very powerful example of an endless exchange of life and love. It's a YouTube video uh, called These Babies Can't Stop Hugging Each Other. This is an endless exchange of life and love. Just when you think it's over. Like, oh, I missed you! Come here! Hey! I want, I want some of that. Hang on, I want some of that. This video, I'm not joking, is like 15 minutes long. So we're, we're going we're to stop there. Endless exchange of life and love. All right, this is what the Catechism says about the Trinity. Again, so this is 20, uh, uh, 221. 220, yeah. The Catechism says this, By sending his only Son in the spirit of love in the fullness of time, God has revealed his innermost secret. I just love that language. It's like, ah, oh, he spilled beans. I love it. All right. He's revealed his innermost secret, that God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he has destined us to share in that exchange. It's one of my favorite paragraphs from the whole catechism, that this is like telling us like the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. And my favorite word in this whole paragraph is that word. <laughs> like God is this eternal exchange of life and love, and he's destined us to share in that exchange. Like the endless bliss, the infinite glory, the unbelievable beatitude that is God's own nature. Like, St. Augustine put it this way when he's describing God. He says, God, you are all that which I long for. You are everything that I long for. The fulfillment of all of my longings. And like the incredible preposterous good news of the gospel of Christianity is that that hunger, that desire actually has a name and a fulfillment. And it's called Jesus. And Jesus is this hand that's extended from heaven to earth and says, will you join the dance? Will you enter in for all eternity? Like, like, we can't even begin to understand what that means. Like, all right, just to give you a little glimpse. All right, so Francis of Assisi, we all know St. Francis. Francis of Assisi, he was the first stigmatic. He had the stigmata, profound union with Jesus. He said to, the, he said to God one time in prayer, he said, I want to experience, like, I want to experience and understand in my heart the love that moved you to leave heaven to become one with us and suffer for me a sinner. In other words, I want to taste the glory of heaven. God says to him in response, Francis, you can't handle it. <laughs> he says, no, yeah, yeah, I can. He says, no, you can't. He said, all right, fine. I will send to you the lowest angel, the smallest angel from the lowest choir who holds the smallest harp to play one note for you, Francis. And Francis is in a coma <laughs> for five days after this mystical experience of prayer. Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> what the heck does that mean? I don't know. Or Teresa Lisieux, who had this powerful experience of tasting God's glory, she comes back to that and she's like, if I could experience one more degree of that glory, I will suffer all the martyrdoms of all the martyrs of all time just to experience one more, one more degree of that glory. Like, uh, what the heck? <laughs> 
Like I, like, I had, like, this snagged toenail the other day. And, like, if you ever have that happen, you slip your feet into your covers and, like, it snags. And it's like, oh, ah, God, I'm dying. Like, cut off my leg. You know? Like, the thought of suffering all the martyrdoms of all the martyrs, like, whatever she tasted is, like, unspeakable. And he has destined us to share in that. Like, that's the incredible good news. So where and how has God revealed this innermost plan, this innermost secret, that he, that he is this endless exchange of life and love and that we're called to communion? He's revealed it in our bodies, in our flesh, in our masculinity, in our femininity, in our complementarity, that we are creatures that are able to enter into life-giving, loving communion, right? So this is the thesis statement, if you will, of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. All right, so he says, the body has been created to transfer into the visible realm of creation, the invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God, and thus to be a sign of it. Like the body, your body, my body, every body was created to be a visible physical sign of that hidden reality, that mystery that God is this life, this endless communion of life and love. He made us to be this sign. All right, so let's, let's go back to this beginning. All right. Um, in the Garden of Eden, Genesis, God's creating everything out of nothing. And after he's making the things, he says it is good. good. Very good. He says it's good. He makes the light, it's good. He makes the sea, it's good. He makes the fish, the birds, the trees, the blue whales, uh, grape jelly, all the things. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. And then, he's, then there's like this pause. And it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So then we see God forming Adam in the second story of creation. He like forms this creature from the earth and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and the man becomes a living being, right? Philosophically, we see there that man is both matter and spirit. He's the combination of body and soul, matter and spirit. Have you gotten to this in philosophy? This unity, this hylomorphic unity, is that a thing that rings a bell yet? Is Beth going to get to that? Do you know? Uh, not Okay. This combination of matter and spirit. We see that right there. All right. By the way, the name Adam literally means dirt man, dirt creature. So if you know any Adams, you should tell them that they're dirt bags. Okay? I'm just kidding. Don't do that. All right. So here's an actual picture of Adam in the garden. You, know, uh, you might not know that we have uh, photo evidence. Um, that's, that's Adam in the garden, dirt man. Okay. So he's in the garden. Everything is good. It's good. It's good. Everything's good up to this point. Then God says something's not good. Who knows what's not good? It's not good that he's alone. It's not good that he's alone. I don't know if you know this, but we have actual audio recording of Adam in the garden by himself singing. Do you know this? I mean, I know, I know a guy who was in the Vatican archives. He got me the recording. So I'm going to play it for you. I don't know if, Sean, is this okay if I play this? Okay, all right, cool. Here's, um, here's Adam alone in the garden singing. heartbroken there's the penguins have got girlfriends and the giraffes got girlfriends and the buzzards got a girlfriend freaking adam he's just i need somebody to love right all right so god puts him into this deep sleep and uh pulls out a rib from his side there's so much symbolism that we could unpack there but 
Um, he pulls out this rib from Adam's side, fashions the bride. Eve is made not from dirt. She's made from even better stuff, right? So which is why Eve is the crown jewel of creation. Creation is on the way up. So uh, ladies, you are the crown jewel of creation. How's that feel? Right? That's pretty nice. All right. So Adam wakes up and he, uh, he begins to sing. And I don't, I don't know if you know this, but we have actual audio recording um, of Adam the moment he saw Eve in the garden. You, you want to hear this song? All right, here's Adam. So he's waking up. And he's like rubbing the sleep from his eyes. And he's like, oh man, my side like kind of hurts. And then he looks over and he sees her and she's naked. And he's like, goes he starts walking towards her he's like flexing (laughs) hey right here's the line right okay Eve do you know where the gym is (laughs) my lonely days are over yeah baby sing it Adam bring it home Songs. All right. Oh, man, it's so romantic. All right. That's so great. All right, so that's Adam waking up, looking at Eve in wonder, right? Because he's finally, for the first time, not seeing it something, like another thing, right? He's seeing some one, a person, another person, someone to whom I can give myself in love, someone who can receive me, right? Adam, for all the creatures that are there, Adam was utterly alone. This is what John Paul II calls original solitude. In this moment, he calls original communion, this communion between them, right? So, like, the union and communion between the persons of the Trinity is made visible in the union and communion of the first couple of Adam and Eve, right? So, this is an icon of the Trinity, a symbol of the the person of the Trinity, this three-in-oneness, right? Our God who is three-in-one, in order to make a visible image of himself, he didn't just make a man, he didn't just make a woman, he made a couple whose bodies and souls are like ordered towards each other, in, like complementary towards each other in such a way that when the two become one, they become so much one that nine months later they have to give it a name, right? And then they're three-in-one, just like our God is three-in-one. Like, do you see how like God made marriage, he made sexuality, he made masculinity and femininity to be this visible physical icon of like it's like this is who i am i am life-giving love i am life-giving love i am life-giving love so this complementarity it points to how god wants to relate to us it points to who he is as this trinity and it points to how he wants to relate to us that god wants us to relate as his bride Like he wants us to be in this posture, like in this relationship, we are not the groom. We are not the initiator of the gift of being. We're not the ones who created ourselves. We're not the ones who sustain ourselves or redeem ourselves, right? God is the one who's initiating this gift and he wants humanity to stand in this posture of the bride, right? And when you think about the feminine body, the way that God has designed it, the femininity speaks of or reveals This like mystery of receptivity, of openness, receptivity to the gift of life that comes forth, right? So God wants humanity to stand in this posture of receptivity. But the problem is we didn't stay in that posture. We were originally in that posture, but we didn't stay in that posture. Something goes wrong in the garden. What do we call that thing that went wrong in the garden? 
What went wrong in the beginning? Go ahead. Original sin. Original sin, the fall. Yeah, the fall. That there is an enemy on this scene, on the stage, who hates our humanity, who hates the plan that God has for us, and he attacks us right where it hurts. He attacks us right at that place of openness to God. See, the enemy's like conversation with Eve, it's not like getting them to become atheists. His, his conversation, the things that he says to Eve and Adam, gets them to think that maybe God isn't this source of life-giving love. Maybe he isn't good. Maybe he doesn't have our best interests in mind. And so what happens is fear rises up, and what they do is they close themselves off. Humanity was meant to stand in this posture of openness, like before God, and now because of the fall, humanity has entered into this posture of closedness before God. That's the fall. That's the problem. That's what Jesus has come to overcome. That's what he came to redeem, right? Again, another Pope Benedict line, that scene where Jesus heals that deaf man who's mute, um, where he like groans and spits on the ground and like touches the guy's tongue. Remember that scene? You know that weird, super weird gospel? You're like, why? Why is he doing, right? That is not COVID approved. Um, But he groans and we hear the Aramaic word, it's ephatha, which means be opened Pope Benedict said that you could summarize Jesus and his entire mission with that word. He came to speak to humanity, be opened, be open to like to the gift I want to give you. Be open to it, right? All right, so the enemy is the one who, out of envy for the plan that God has for us, goes to war against us and gets us to enter into this posture of closed fear, closed fear. But God doesn't leave us in that place. He doesn't leave us bereft of his love. He launches a rescue mission right away, right? That's what like Genesis talks about. Like, I will, like this, the woman will crush your head, Satan, which is, I love that. I love that so much. I love that it's Eve or Mary who's just like, I'm going to step on your head. I'm just going to step on your head, right? With a stiletto. No, I'm just kidding. Um, like, that's what's going on right now, by the way, in our culture, I think. I think that, like, Mary has her foot on the serpent's neck, and, like, he's just thrashing his tail all around us. Like, that's what I think is going on in the culture. Um, all the craziness that you guys see all around you. It's just the enemy's, like, the last, like, just desperate attempt for life. Because she's going to crush his head. All right. So, you guys still with me? You good? Okay. So, God launches this rescue mission to bring humanity back into right relationship, Right? So this rescue mission, it begins with Israel, that God is forming these covenants with this unique people, basically saying, I want to, I need to retrain your heart to be in right relationship with me. I am your God, you are my people, right? So God launches this rescue mission and he does it through covenants. Now, covenant is different than contract. You hear that word covenant all the time in mass or in the scriptures. Covenant is different than contract because a contract is an exchange of property. A contract says, like, this is yours and that is mine. Like, here is cash, and you give me thing, right? This is yours, that is mine. That's a contractual relationship. Covenant says, I am yours, and you are mine. So when God forms covenant with humanity, beginning with Noah, then with Abram, then with Moses, then David, right? These covenants are God's way of trying to glue the marriage back together. I want relationship with you, right? I want you to open yourselves to me. I want you to understand who I am. I want you to trust me, to trust the gift I want to give you. So salvation history, if you can like think of your Bible, the entire Old Testament in many ways is like this long, arduous, painful school of trust. 
It's, it's the bridegroom, God, Jesus, healing the bride's, what I'm calling her Stockholm Syndrome. Anybody heard of Stockholm Syndrome before? It's a weird, weird thing that happens, happens that like someone who gets kidnapped, um, sometimes the, the, the victim like begins developing feelings of affection or affinity for their kidnapper, right? You begin siding with your kidnapper, like defending your kidnapper and like that's what happened with humanity. We, be, we developed this spiritual Stockholm syndrome with the enemy that like we don't, trust the, we don't trust God. We keep him at bay. And so God, what he's doing all throughout the long pages of salvation history is he's, he's trying to like woo our hearts, humanity's heart to like finally open, to receive, to be loved, right? Over and over again, the enemy says like, you must seek to satisfy your own hearts, your own desires. God's not coming from you. He's not coming for you. You can't trust him. So God is doing these covenants. Like this is the way I want you to think about the Old Testament from now on, that this is the story of God pursuing humanity with Noah and then with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses and the Israelites and the covenant with David. Like all of this, all of this is this, the pursuit of the bridegroom. Like, think about all of our stories. Think about all of our, like, Disney princess stories before Disney got woke. Um, the stories of, like, the way that, that the bride gets rescued. There's nothing cheesy or, I don't know, stupid about, like, especially as a woman. There's nothing cheesy or stupid about longing to be pursued in love. Like, that truth in your heart, that longing is ancient and real, and it speaks of, like, the deepest truth of the real, the, the most real story, right? Every woman is a sign, a symbol of the church, right? And the church is the one who gets rescued by the bridegroom, right? This is the story. Like, this is why those stories work, because it taps into the story. So as the prophets of Israel begin to look over Israel's history, they begin to see that there is a deeper mystery at play here that like like they, every time they fall into idolatry it's like they're committing spiritual adultery right and they're breaking god's heart and god's saying i just want this relationship with you like listen to this from this is from isaiah he says as a young man marries a as what do i have a, as a young man marries a as a young virgin so will your builder marry you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride so will your god rejoice over you like, this is just one example of, of many of the prophets, the way that they are, like, understanding God's heart and communicating, like, don't you see? Like, I want such a depth of relationship with you. The prophets begin longing for this, just not another covenant, but a definitive covenant, a, dare we say, a new and eternal covenant, a covenant that humanity won't break, a covenant that will be perfect, a covenant that speaks of the final reunion between heaven and earth, this marriage that God wants with us. They want this covenant. We want this covenant. We want this union. All right, so back to that Song of Songs book. Right, the Song of Songs, the, the ancient uh, rabbis, they used to say this, that the, that the Song of Songs was the most sacred book in the, the Hebrew scriptures. They would say all scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. What's the Holy of Holies in the temple? Yeah. The Ark of the Covenant. 
It's not, it's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's the innermost sanctum of the temple. And who got to go into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. The high priest. How often? Once a year. Once a year. Yeah. The high priest got to enter into the innermost part. The temple, when you, like, the temple is the bride. The temple is Israel. The temple is humanity. The high priest gets to enter into the innermost part of the Holy of Holies once a year. The innermost part of the bride, if you will, once a year. Like, and the rabbis are saying this book, the Song of Songs, it is the Holy of Holies of the scriptures. It's the bride longing for union with her bridegroom. Like, that's what you hear all throughout that book. This longing in the heart of the bride for her bridegroom and the longing of the bridegroom for his bride. In fact, in... in um, well, I'll get to that in a second, but one of, the, one of the most poignant and beautiful lines is this time when the bridegroom comes to the bride at night and he's knocking on her door and he says to her, open to me, oh, think again, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I know this might seem like a lot, especially for guys. Like, this is a lot of romantic, lovey-dovey stuff going on. But, like, what we're getting to is, like, like the, the way that God can communicate the depth of his love to us is, is through these analogies, through these allegories. And the Song of Songs is, like, it's the best analogy, it's the best allegory to describe how deep God wants to go with you. Like, he knows your heart. Like, guys, he knows your heart. My sisters, he knows your heart, and he wants such a relationship with you. And like the problem all throughout Israel, all throughout humanity's history was this closed off bride, right? Humanity was closed before God from the fall onward. We had little glimpses where we were like kind of opening and then we would close off again. And like we know this in our lives, right? We have these, this, these seasons where we're like starting to open and then we're like, oh, I don't know, that's too, I can't, I can't trust you. Like, if you've ever tried to pray, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? So the question is, who will open? Who will receive? Who will open? Is there someone, is there a heart that is willing to open up her longing to God's longing? Is there a, is there a someone who's willing to let God in? Scripture describes it as the fullness of time. God sends an angel to this young girl of Nazareth. And what you see here is this like proposal. You see this undoing of the fall, right? Lucifer is an angel. He's a fallen angel who approaches the bride. Gabriel is an angel who approaches the bride. This is the, the annunciation is the anti-fall, if you will. Just like Mary is the, is the actual rival of Lucifer, right? She is the devil's counterpoint and she's far stronger right what you see here is like the fulfillment of that of the song of songs what you see here is that perfect like will there be anybody who will open up like all of salvation history has been this long story of god slowly trying to woo humanity's heart back into this posture of openness until finally like here's humanity she is humanity she is all of us she is all creatures all she is is, is you and I, and all she does is she's opening herself. Yes, let it be done unto me according to thy word, right? And this question, will you receive him? And she says, yes. Okay, 
What's happening here is so much more than just like a conception. There's something mystical. There's something deeply mystical. It's a, like I said, it's a recapitulation of the fall. So here, the word is made flesh and dwelt among us. The church fathers, those early Christians, they would describe, they would say Mary's womb, Mary's womb, they said, is the bridal chamber. The bridal chamber. Okay, the bridal chamber. What is that? That's where after the vows, the couple consummates the union, where the two become one flesh. They say her womb is the immaculate bridal chamber where the things of heaven are wed to those of earth. What do we say about Jesus? We say it in the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, only begotten Son of God, true God and true man. That in his person, he is the wedding together of heaven and earth. He's not part God, part man. He's not like Hercules, you know. He's not like Thor. He is the bringing together of heaven and earth. He is the marriage of heaven and earth, right? Her womb is the bridal chamber. Jesus is the marriage of heaven and earth. He's the divine bridegroom. This is the icon of the bridegroom. In his person, like, like I said, he's this marriage. And again, where was his first miracle? The what of Cana? The wedding, the wedding feast of Cana. Like, do you think it's like interesting that of all the things he could have done, he, the first miracle he performs is doing the role of the bridegroom at a wedding. Like he's trying to signal, hey, 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 like wake up, I'm the bridegroom. I've come to provide the wine. The, and wine in the Old Testament in the scriptures is this, uh, this sign, this symbol of divine love. I've come to flood your heart with divine love. That's what I've come to do. He identifies himself as the bridegroom. He says things when he's walking with the apostles and they're picking heads of grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are like, hey, you can't do that. It just sounded like Jim Gaffigan a little bit. Um, but he, he says to him, he's like, can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? Like Jesus is so clearly identifying himself like as the bridegroom. Or think about this scene, we hear it during Lent when Jesus has that encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, right? So they come to this plot of land in Sychar, where's this well, Jacob's well. And there's this Samaritan woman who's there. And we know about this woman that she's had six husbands or five husbands. And the man that she's with now is not her husband. So she's had five. She's with number six. She's not married to him, right? And she's there talking to Jesus. Now, if you were a Jew reading this story or hearing someone tell you this story, you would automatically think, oh, a wedding's about to happen. Why would you think that? Because in the Old Testament, there's this like this trope, if you will, when you have a woman at a well plus a foreign visitor, foreign male visitor, they get married. Like, where does Moses meet his wife Zipporah? At a well. Where does Jacob meet his wife Rachel? At a well. Like, over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, foreign dude meets lady at well, wedding bells are in the air. Like, that's, that's the symbolism. All right, so what's the perfect number in the Bible? What number represents perfection? Seven. Seven. So she's been married to five guys, and she's with number six. Which number represents imperfection in the Bible? Six. six. And who's she sitting with right now? Seven. Number seven. She's talking to the perfect bridegroom. She's talking to the one that her heart has been longing for, right? Like that whole scene... 
like it's so hard like it's so hard for us modern readers or modern Christians to look at that and be like that scene is like all about love and bridegroom bride blah 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 like but it's all over there it's all over it or even the last supper the last supper like if you were a young Jewish guy in Jesus' time if you wanted to uh, get betrothed to your little Jewish honey um, you would first talk to her dad okay it's still the same but then you would present her a cup of wine and you would say, this is the cup of my covenant. Does that ring a bell? People who've been to Mass before? Yeah, like the Last Supper is not simply the Passover. It's not simply the institution of the Eucharist. Jesus is entering into this betrothal like, relationship with humanity. Like the cup of blessing that he gives at the Last Supper is this nuptial cup. It's this, I want to be in this relationship with you. And then what Jesus does, like what he says with his words on the night of the Last Supper, he literally does with his body on the cross the next day. Just like a couple, when they get married, they speak their vows to each other at the wedding. I give my entire self to you. I'm laying everything down for you. I'm holding nothing back. I'm giving it entirely to you. That's essentially what their vows are. And then what they've said with their words, they then do with their bodies, right? In the bridal chamber, if you will. Right, so Jesus, after he institutes the Eucharist, he goes to the cross and literally does what he said he would do, which is, I will pour my life out for you. And his last words on the cross, we hear it in English as, it is finished, but the original Greek was, tel telestai, which when St. Jerome translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, he translated that as consumatum est. It is consummated. So after the couple has said their vows to each other on the day of the wedding, are they yet fully married? Yes or no? Who says no? Very brave. You're right. You get a gold star and all my applause. No, why are they not fully married? That's not been consummated, right? They, like what they've said with their words, they have to do with their bodies. Like, so like, Jesus, the very last gasp of breath in his life, and it says, he says it with a loud voice, it is consummated. The marriage, the union between heaven and earth is consummated. And then he expires, he dies. And what did they do to make sure that he was dead on the cross? What did they do? They speared his side, right? And what flowed out? Blood and water. Blood and water. So here you have Jesus, the new Adam, asleep in death, if you will. Think of Adam in the garden. If Jesus, the new Adam, asleep in death on the cross and flowing out of his side comes blood and water. The early church fathers, the earliest Christians, they looked at those two things, blood and water, and they said, those are representing the sacraments. Specifically, baptism and Eucharist, right? Which one represents baptism? The blood or the water? Water, right? And the Eucharist is the, is the blood, right? And baptism and Eucharist, like, these are the sacraments that make us the bride, that make us part of the church. So flowing out of Jesus' side as he's asleep in death on the cross, birthed, if you will, from his side, comes his bride, which is the church. Just like the first Adam, asleep in the garden, pulled out of his side, comes his bride, the ch Eve. Like, do you see what's happening here? Like, do you see how God has all of this together? Also, in the ancient... Uh, Jewish custom, when they were celebrating Passover, the, the, uh, the rabbis would be chanting all day long the song of, or the, um, the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to uh, whatever the last book of the, the Torah is. They'd be chanting the scriptures. 
So you would hear in, like in the air the scriptures. And by the time it would get to around 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, somewhere in that time, 1 to 3 o'clock, the rabbis would have arrived at the Song of Songs. So there, like, as Jesus is outside of the walls of Jerusalem being crucified, like pouring himself out as the bridegroom for the bride, you would have, he would have heard over the city the longing of the Song of Songs. He would have heard the bride calling out, longing for her bridegroom. Like all of this goes together. Like this is why we have the audacity to call Good Friday Good Friday, not just Murder Friday, which is like a weird name, <laughs> right? How are you going to celebrate Murder Friday this year? Yeah, this is Good Friday because he wasn't just executed because this is the, this is the marriage of the bridegroom. This is when Jesus lays his life down, gives his life up in the flesh. This is why St. Paul says, oh, yeah, these are great images from the monastery in, uh, down in Toronto, the TOR sisters. Anybody been there? The TOR sisters? Holy smokes. I love this image of the, uh, the blood and water pouring out of the side of Christ. It's like this gushing river. It is so awesome. Anyway, Paul says this. This is back to that Ephesians quote. He says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. See, what St. Paul is saying here, like, okay, so you've got a bride and groom, left father and mother, left father and mother, they come together to be joined to each other in one flesh. He says this reality on the horizontal plane has its ultimate meaning, its reference points to this, to what Jesus is doing. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. I'm giving everything away. I'm laying everything down. Like This is what Paul is saying. This is what he calls the great mystery. That from the beginning you have God creating marriage, creating Adam and Eve, the bride pulled forth from the side of the first man, right? Why? Because it's pointing forward to the new Adam and the new Eve, if you will, right? Here's Mary representing the church, receiving the flow of blood and water out of Christ's side. This is the great mystery, that what happened in the beginning was pointing to what would happen on the cross. So where does all of this continue? Right? Is this not just like, oh, that's fascinating. That's amazing scripture stuff. I wish I would be part of my life today. No, like this is how like, Jesus reaches us today. This is what the sacraments are. Like this reality that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross of the bridegroom pouring himself into the bride is what happens at every single Mass, every single liturgy, every single Mass. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. The entire thing. Like from Mass to saints to popes to liturgies to processions, everything, everything, everything. Like his love still comes to us in the flesh. That like that relationship is not just something that we like have to look back and fondly think, boy, that would have been great to have been alive at Jesus' time, to have like, you know, have like a beer with him. (laughs) No, like that relationship is still available to us in the flesh, but most don't see it because most people don't have these lenses. They just go to mass and they think, eh, mass. But you have no idea, like you are in the throne room, (laughs) like scripture says. You are in the book of Revelation, You are in the place where angels don't dare to go. 
Like you are there. You are there at Calvary. You are there at the Last Supper. You are there in the throne room where the bridegroom is giving himself. He's pouring everything out. But most people don't see it. Most people don't know that the chalice is the bride. It's you. It's me. It's Mary. Right? The word chalice comes from the Latin word calyx. Comes from the Latin word calyx. And what's a calyx? Calyx comes from, uh, it's an anatomical part of the flower. Right? So this part of the flower right here is called the calyx. It has a very important function for the flower's reproduction. Right? Um, so like bees fly along, they land on, they, get, they drop pollen in. But in order for like pollination and germination to actually occur, like there has to be moisture in there. There has to be moisture. And so the, the petals of the flower, they collect dew in the morning and the dew falls down into the heart of the flower, and it's gathered in the calyx. So the calyx's job is to collect the dewfall, right? So that the flower can have, it can reproduce, it can have life. So here's a question. Uh, what does a bride carry when she walks down the aisle? Flowers. What's it? Flowers. Flowers, right? What's this, like, main ingredient in women, women's perfume? Flowers. Flowers, right? those of you who are dating, if you piss off your girlfriend, what do you need to buy her when, you're, when she's mad at you? Flowers. Okay, good. All right. What do we decorate our churches with, churches with at Easter time? Flowers. These are not trick questions. Okay. <laughs> no, wrong. No. Banners. <laughs> no! God, no! <laughs> no more banners. Burn them all. All right. Flowers, right? Why? Because it's the bride. The flower is the openness of the bride to the coming of the bridegroom, right? That's what a, fl- a flower is. This is going to sound so weird. This is going to sound so weird. A flower is nature's most beautiful reproductive organ. That's what it is. That's what it is. It is creaturely receptivity to the gift of life to be poured in. When Mary shows up, in people's prayer and mysticism, what do they usually smell? Flowers. flowers. What kind of flowers? Roses. Roses. Mary does not smell like roses, though. Roses smell like Mary. It's a little flippy flip for you. All right. So if, all right, when you see, like, traditionally, the chalice is, is veiled, right? The chalice is veiled. Someone's feeling something. Someone's feeling something. Who else gets veiled at Catholic masses? The bride. The bride. And who unveils the bride? The bridegroom. Right? So the chalice, which represents the bride, is brought over to the altar. The altar is where things of heaven are wed to those of earth. And the priest, who represents Jesus, who is the bridegroom, unveils the chalice. <gasps> you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Yeah, okay. So, uh, holy smokes. All right, because he's preparing to give himself to her, right? That's what's going on. All right, then I want you to think about this. Make holy, therefore, these gifts we pray by sending down your spirit upon them like the... Dewfall. Dewfall. Fall. <laughs> you with me? Okay? And then I want you to remember 
the bridegroom comes to the bride in the Song of Songs, open to me, my sister, my bride, open to me, my lovely one, my head is drenched with... Do what? Do you see how all of this is going together? Like, the one whom all our hearts are aching for and looking for and, like, desiring, he, came, he became flesh. He, he bridged the infinite gulf between heaven and earth and says, I'm coming for you. I'm going to put myself into your hands. Like, he came in search of us. Like, beauty himself came for us to, like, slake our thirst and satisfy our hearts. And, like, and you and me, every time we come to Mass... Like, we receive him. We receive him. Like, the Eucharist, guys, John Paul II said that the Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. That's what the Eucharist is, he says. Mind you, like, not matrimony, where you have a bridegroom and a bride, right? That's not the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. No, he says the Eucharist is the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride. Because what happens at every Mass? Just like at every wedding... When it comes time for communion, the bridegroom stands at the foot of the altar awaiting his bride to walk down the altar or down the aisle. Right? Just like at every wedding. There he is, and here she comes. They meet right there. He says, the body of Christ, and she opens and receives, and the two become one flesh. Like, whoo! Like, Man, I want to close with uh, a few thoughts. This quote from uh, uh, C.S. Lewis. He says this, we do, not merely, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with the beauty we see to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. We might even add to eat it and drink it. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Or better yet, it will get into us. Like, the, like all the drama, all the love, all the longing in your hearts for beauty and love and fulfillment, all of that, like all of that aching, all of that is consummated in that tiny moment. The body of Christ, amen. Like everything which my heart seeks has now revealed itself in the flesh, this flesh. Like this is the love story. This is the lens like that makes sense of everything. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, you are wild and mad and passionate in your love and your pursuit of us. I ask, Father, that, uh, that you would send your spirit upon these amazing young people, that you would stir up in their hearts an even greater longing for you, you who never cease to thirst for us. And so we turn to you, Mary, uh, as the perfect yes of humanity to divinity, as we pray together, Hail Mary full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Whew, I went a few minutes over, but boom, done. Uh, any, any questions?
Thank you.